Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to our weekly show where I'm joined by co-founder Piers Curran to talk about one of the big headlines in global markets this week. And the one that I've decided to pick out is a little bit sensational. That's how we like to roll, is go with the media, financial media headline, but then deconstruct it. And so after you get uh, scared, you can then come back, breathe, and uh, everything's going to be okay because Piers will explain that it's probably not quite as sensational as uh, they'd have you believe. So the headline this week is that a major U.S. investment bank, City, and Europe's largest fund manager, Amundi, have sounded the alarm on stocks with tech labeled as, quote, the big tech hype. So strategists at City said that investor positioning in U.S. technology stocks is so bullish that any sell-off could trigger a wider route in financial markets, while Europe's biggest fund manager, Amundi, blasted tech stocks and warned that stocks are 20% too expensive. A couple of days later, Goldman's then came out with a slightly more, what I would classify as a measured approach. And interestingly, because we're talking here predominantly in this conversation about the Magnificent Seven, the big tech names, they released what is normally uh, a document that's behind a very expensive paywall that goes to more generally um, sophisticated investors. And by that, I mean hedge funds and uh, these types of clients. But actually, they put this in front of the paywall, which I thought was was pretty meaningful, but makes sense given the subjects of the stocks and who buys these types of stocks and shares. So, yeah, first of all, Piers, just wanted to ask you, um, I know we kind of have this conversation on a recurring basis, 
But City and Mundy, those types of headlines, is it just like you don't even like break sweat? You're just like, okay, what is it? What have they? What are they trying to base it on this time? Or do you actually go, yeah, actually, you know, we have been rallying pretty aggressive. I'd be interested to see what their rationale is and what yeah. they're thinking. I mean, I think, um, and th- there's a third option. Have have the press taken it out of context? Mm. I actually think maybe that's the case here. I mean, what I would say is, yeah, obviously the MAG7 is the buzzword of 2023. It continues to be the buzzword 2024. Um, and you're a brave man to bet against them. Some might say foolish. Uh, some might say broke uh, <laughs> if you bet against these lot. And um, I think the Goldsman's piece will get it will get into it, but you know, comes yeah, puts forward a pretty compelling argument when you look at the kind of cool hard numbers that these stocks. You know, perhaps there is still room for them to continue to move higher. I think maybe what Amundi's comment about a sell-off in those seven might trigger a broad market sell-off. I, th- I think that, that that is true technically, right? Because they make up such a huge portion um, of the overall index that if you get some selling in those seven, then the, the percentage numbers by, by which the overall index is going to start to drop would be large. The point there is when you get an index dropping by a certain, you know, a large number of percentage points, it then starts triggering, you know, stop losses. So you'll have a lot of trend following algos that are just very mechanically set up where if the trend reverses by a certain percentage points and then right, you, they sell, right? So, and then it can kind of exacerbate into a snowball effect where that, that stop loss triggering accelerates the drop which then leads to more stop losses being triggered and, and so on, right? So I actually think maybe Amundi's point is more of a technical one about how markets behave. That's I haven't read Amundi's research piece. I could be wrong. Maybe they are just straight out bearish on tech, but I doubt it because I'm not really quite sure what the thesis and argument would be there. Yeah. So well, the context here is even looking at year to date and you know we're only what, the fifth week in. I think yeah. the MAG7 outperformance sharply from last year has persisted because we were up about uh, nearly double digits year to date compared to just 3% or so in the S&P, or the S&P yeah. 493, I should say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's 8%, I think, um, by by yesterday's maths probably, or maybe maybe by middle of the week, but... Eight percent—that's the mag mag seven in 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 twenty twenty four. Yeah, three percent for the four nine three. If you look at twenty twenty three overall as a whole, that twelve month period, then the divergence is is, is monstrous. The mag seven were up seventy six percent versus just fourteen percent. If you took the remaining four hundred ninety three companies in that index, um, and so yeah, the the outperformance has certainly continued. We know why. You know, we've had some pretty phenomenal earnings beats from these uh, big tech companies and and their earnings have been better and we're still sitting, you know, I, you know, you'd put um, you'd put probably Meta and NVIDIA at the top of that list in terms of absolutely smashing it. Um, 
but you know there have been some casualties because tesla got hammered of course so you know i know we're used to talking about the magnificent seven and it's almost become one thing it's become it's almost like one asset i'm going to buy the mag seven or i'm going to sell the mag seven but actually maybe this year maybe we'll dig into it a bit more later in this conversation but i think in 2024 you might see uh a bigger divergence in performance amongst the seven um and we, I think we've certainly seen that already in January and now into the early parts of February. Um, so one, one of the parallels that people will always draw when they're trying to think about, you know, are this breakaway group of stocks in a uh, inappropriately elevated space in terms of their valuation is they try to draw parallels with the dot-com bubble. Right. When did you start trading? Was that, were you just missed the dot-com bubble? Yeah, I'm not that old. Come on. <laughs> uh, I started my job at HSBC on the desk in, well, it was actually September 2001. And it was actually the, the end of the Friday of my first week was 9-11. Right. Which was a pretty, I mean, obviously shocking, shocking event. But like for someone who was so inexperienced and just pressed the whole thing from, from a financial markets point of view, obviously everything just went, it was carnage. Um, and so, yeah, it was a baptism of fire to say the very least for me in my career to kind of see that shocking event right up front week one. Um, but yeah, so September, 2001. So I missed the peak of the dot-com bubble by 18 months because it was March, 2000. So by that point, given the significance of that event you just mentioned, no one even there was never conversations again. I guess about no the bubble period. No, well, actually, yeah, you're, I mean that's right. I mean, I, what what then happened? Well, I mean, I mean, we went into a recession. We were kind of sliding that way anyway because of the bubble bursting. But the nine eleven event really just, from a sentiment point of view, you know, really just you know, drove us into that recession. So we had a recession then into 2002. And then we started to recover sort of second half of 2003. And really, we had a straight line bull run um, then through to the financial crisis. Um, but yeah, so that dot-com bubble definitely got, uh, the conversation got taken down the 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 list, um, obviously, when 9-11 happened. Yeah. So, so in the... In the Goldman's report, then it's you know it's the one that we have where the kind of doors open and we can actually look quite deep into the analysis that they've done. So, what observations have they made then, tying in this kind of bringing up the the, the what was then five companies, right? The tech bubble yeah. five, and what did that look like? And then what does the Mag Seven look like? And then it, right. what's the similarities and the differences? Yeah, so that bubble, we, history can tell us that the prices and the valuations that the big five tech stocks reached in March 2001 was too high. It was unsustainable. It was a bubble. It did burst. We now know, right? Um, so fast forward to 2024. So the question is, well, hang on, these tech stocks now, there's seven of them. Well, they've gone through the roof. Is this not a bubble? You know, shouldn't now the bubble burst as maybe Amundi are, are suggesting? And so you look and compare like for like, and you can do that on a few different metrics. So the best one is just their, their earnings multiple. 
So their price to earnings um, ratio, basically, right? And so um, when you look at the the biggest five tech stocks in in the year 2000, and actually before I reveal the big number, I've got a little little test for your for you, little test of your knowledge. Who were the big five? tech oh. stocks in the year 2000 so i know i know you've read this uh goldman sachs report <laughs> it didn't actually no refer to the company so i'm, I'm interested to know Oof. if you can pick any out is it cisco one of them cisco was the number two at that point valued at 500 billion uh ibm very good they were fifth 150 billion market cap I mean, Microsoft must have been big. Well, that's the thing. They were the biggest in <laughs> right. the year 2000. And they're, they're now okay. the biggest in 2024, having just overtaken Apple. So Microsoft were the number one back then at 550 billion. I'm getting pushed now for four and five. <laughs> All right. Well, look, you've got Microsoft, Cisco, Microsoft one, Cisco two, Intel, number three. Intel. Oracle number four. Oh, wow. Yeah. IBM number five. Okay. So they're your big five, right? Now, at the height of the bubble, March 2000, when the NASDAQ hit its, hit its zenith, they were trading at 43 times earnings. Okay. So the, the, the price of the company based on, like the market cap based on the, the kind of share price at that point was 43 times the profit, the annual profit. Okay. That's, we now know, was too expensive was a bubble and it all came crashing down, okay? Um, and that was at the time, uh, 43 times earnings, the S&P 500, the index was trading at 25 times. So the gap between the two categories was huge, 43 times versus 25. Um, also, there's something else to say that the, um, the US treasuries were yielding 6% in the year 2000 versus 4% now. We often look at something called the earnings yield gap, which is just looking at, right, well, what, you know, what are the earnings versus actually what's the kind of risk-free rate at the moment? If I put my money in US treasuries, how much can I earn from that? And can, that can play um, a role as well. But so, yeah, 43 times, okay. But if you look at the PE ratio of the MAG7, well, it's 30 times. So obviously that's lower, okay? So 43 times in the year 2000, 30 times now. And the gap between the two, therefore, is also narrower, i.e. the gap in multiple from the MAG7 versus the, the underlying index, which is 18. So that, that's one thing to say. And the US Treasury yield, yield today is 4%. So from, from an earnings comparison, from a price-to-earnings ratio comparison, then the MAG7 are not as expensive today as those big five were back in the year 2000. So that alone is one argument to say that we're not in a bubble and that, you know, these stocks could move further to the upside. Um, there's one further point, right? Because obviously it's, it's you know, price to earnings ratio is one thing, but then, you know, are these multiples justified? And ultimately this gets down to the point. Are high multiples justified? The answer is yes, if growth rates in the into the future are nice and solid and strong. Okay. They are not justified if growth rates start to weaken 
or you know some kind of negative event happens and then obviously those multiples aren't justified so really a high multiple today people are buying like 30 times sounds like a lot right put that into context you buy the stock and you're basically the next 30 years of profit is already priced into the price you're paying okay that's assuming there would be no growth but of course you assume there is going to be growth and so you know ultimately growth is key and one th- one key difference about the mag 7 today versus the the big 5 the bubble 5 of 2000 is well what are they doing with their profits and actually the mag 7 today they're reinvesting 60% of their cash flows they're spending that on capex and r and d right reinvesting it back in you know people like meta right at the top of that list and have been for a long time plowing money in to build out this metaverse which might or might not pay off for them in the future but they they're investing it in something new um microsoft you know they're all upping their spend um as they try and build out and, and try and you know compete in the ai race obviously to the benefit of the likes of nvidia because where's the big spend going? Well, NVIDIA chips, right, to build out their compute power. But 60% of their cash flows is being spent um, on R&D. That's more than double the bubble five from the year 2000. So there's way more reinvestment going on, which means investors are more confident that these really strong growth rates we see today can be sustained into the future. Yeah, I mean, naively, I'm kind of listening, thinking the companies um, before in the bubble era, when I think about those companies, as I said, naively, I think of Cisco being like infrastructure and chips with Intel. Microsoft is probably selling hardware more at the time. And so, yeah, fundamentally, the companies now are much more SaaS scale. Right in a way where those multiples seem much more achievable than before when they just seemed a different type of more stagnant, a little bit more clunky in terms of what was there they were actually selling at the time. Yeah, that's true. But I might counter that because so Intel, right, chips, well, NVIDIA, mm. they make chips. Microsoft, well, you could say they were hardware back then. I mean, obviously their Windows... Uh, and office suites were 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 the SaaS part, but you know hardware. Well, what do you think Apple do? True, you know. So, so yeah, yes, yes, and no. So that well, would would the businesses be more diversified now than they were? Right, there? definitely. So, like Apple, for example, what their service division is what a quarter or so. Right. So that's that's definitely true, and that's a strong argument that they're more diverse, and actually the uh, the diverse parts of their revenue are, are actually the sort of faster growing, which is more the sassy type stuff rather than your hardware. Yeah, it's like when you look at Amazon and you think of their cloud compute division. Well, you know that's the sexy part. That's the thing that's growing the fastest. That's the the sassy part. And so yeah, the 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 bubble five back then I think were way more one dimensional um, in what they were doing. And so, you know, their valuations went super high and yeah, they weren't justified and obviously it all came crashing, crashing back down. Yeah. I don't know if you remember at the time, so this is open question, but is the, is the regulatory environment any different in terms of, is it, is it 
easier now for companies to thrive or is it the same um, or different? That's a good question. I can't, I mean, just trying to think back. Like how was tech, like so we're in this situation now where uh, government, let's say the state's quite, uh, let, let's say, curious, but also somewhat mindful of the risks of AI. And so regulation yeah. is a tangible risk about how they tackle that. But also, um, you know, the, the strength, the visibility, the reach of all these tech firms and so forth with their various tentacles that they have. I just wonder whether that was the same or different back in the bubble era. I'm not sure about going, I'm not sure about the bubble. You're, so you're basically talking about the 90s, really. Um, I'm trying to think back. I don't think at that point, I mean, the tech sector was still, I mean, it's weird to think, right? It was still up and coming and it wasn't, it wasn't the biggest sector and it was probably the fastest growing, right? And then the internet came along and it all kind of just exploded and that's why we got a bubble. Um, but it was so it was so new. I don't think the regulator, it wasn't really on their radar. If you move into the noughties, I mean, this is post-bubble now. I think the best example I could probably give is Meta, Facebook back then, who were founded in 2004. And look, they did some mega deals. They bought WhatsApp. You know, they bought Instagram, okay? There is zero chance, literally zero, that those types of acquisitions could be made now. Um, the regulator would be absolutely 100% blocking that. The regulator, if they had their way, not only would they be blocking, you know, acquisition, new acquisitions, they'd be breaking up the existing companies and forcing them to splinter into their different component parts. I mean, they're not going to get their way. Well, I wouldn't say any time soon, right, on that front. But certainly the regulatory environment today for these tech firms really takes the M&A driven growth off the table if they're buying more mature companies. I think obviously these tech firms today, they are hoovering up, you know, uh, startups, and they're hoovering up, you know, certainly in the AI space. And you think about Microsoft and OpenAI. Well, that's a great example. This is the only way they can do it, right? They've got to take much bigger, riskier bets where they're buying in and investing in businesses that are right at their, even at their seed stage, right? Because um, you can't buy, you know, mature, super large companies because the regulator won't allow it. Okay. So, so what? So you had another. Did you have another point? Well, I was going to just move on maybe and talk a bit about this growth rate of the Mag 7 then, because if Goldman's mm. are basically saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, the valuations today, they're not like the bubble five. So we shouldn't from that, at least from that kind of comparison, we shouldn't be thinking the Mag 7 are overpriced, um, like maybe a Mundi are suggesting. And then they go on to kind of really back up why they think that because goldman's are bullish on the mag 7 they think for the whole of 2024 they will again outperform the rest of the index goldman's are definitely not thinking "Ooh, these share prices have gone up a lot you know this looks toppy maybe we should start to think about getting out they're having none of that and they base that really on again back to the very simple maths of growth rate expectations and so um, if we look at the, the the kind of growth rates, where so if you look over the next three years, then according to Goldman's, based on their modeling, then they think the the three year 
CAGR, as they call it, compound annual growth rate um, of the MAG7 will be 12% versus then the rest of the S&P 493, their growth rate's 3%. So you've got quadruple the growth rate. And look, that's so we talk about this thing called CAGR, which is a very important metric when you're trying to start to think about you know, mapping out future growth rates and therefore what might be the future value of this business and right, then you reverse it back and go, well, what's the value today? And okay, right, is it cheap? Actually, should I be buying this thing? Um, and and the key the key word in in CAGR, C-A-G-R, uh, the key word is compound, right? So it's compounding. So if you've got a three-year CAGR at 12%, you're growing 12% in year one, then you're a bigger business, right? You're 12% bigger. In year two, if you again grow at 12%, that's your revenue in dollar terms is increasing by a larger amount in year two than it did in year one, even though the growth rate's the same at 12, because you're growing from now a bigger base, right? So that compounding effect, if your growth rate's the same every year, that's a really interesting kind of accelerating sort of growth story. And so from that respect, you know, the MAG7 are looking way more tasty, way more interesting. Yes, their valuations based on multiples are higher today, reflecting that outperformance that in the growth space that we think is going to happen in the years to come. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, if so you just, look- yeah, just on that point, then so that's that's all great if you're the Mag Seven, right? I can't help but feel though, stepping out of the finance world for a second, yeah. If this seven group of companies is going to grow at four times the rate of the other largest companies, and it's going to compound over time, aren't we going to have a problem where there's going to be seven companies that are all mighty and dominant? that is going to just strangle innovation in the West or, or or cause some kind of regulatory issue down the line that surely this can't just continue to happen because it the, the gap between them and the rest is only going to get larger. Well, it's the, it's the sort of conundrum of our time, isn't it? And, well, I, I, maybe there's two ways of thinking about that in my, my immediate reaction to what you've just said. The, the kind of positive spin would be, well, you know, aren't we at the cusp of now a new, you know, secular, you know, cycle, a long-term cycle with AI beginning, okay? Now, with the birth of AI, this is going to then spawn a massive industry, all of its own, that never existed a few years ago, right? Now, it's, yes, the big boys are driving that that evolution, Okay, um, and they're throwing all the money in the world, but you know, then you're going to have a whole new set of companies piggybacking off that that work that the large boys are doing, right? So I think you could say that quite the opposite in terms of stifling innovation, because we're at the the beginning of this new wave. I think innovation will will increase, um, but you are definitely right to say that the big will get bigger now. Um, I, can't, I can't see any other outcome here. Now, I don't know where the crossroads is. Um, and I don't know where the political bravery is. Well, I mean, is it bravery? I don't know. To, to, to just say stop. Now you're too big. 
now we are breaking you up. Mm. I mean, that that ultimately, that is a risk. I have got no way. I would definitely not like to predict how far down the path that crossroads is, but we're definitely not there now. But you would have thought we have to reach that point if this trajectory continues, because ultimately these tech firms will become more powerful than the governments themselves. And ultimately, politics is self-serving and they won't let that happen. Well, you know, we can always end this on a positive note. <laughs> uh, there's one final point to justify the the kind of multiple levels of the Mag 7 and to say that they're not expensive at this point. And that's looking at their, um, their annualized returns, right? So the Mag 7 um, have delivered 10, 29% um, annualized returns, like when you're looking back, right? Um, this is sorry. This is since 2019. So if you go back to just before COVID, they've delivered annualized returns of 29%. Okay, how are those returns made up? Well, of the 29%, 27% is earnings growth. Now you can split that into two: sales and then margin growth. Okay, so of the 27%, 21% of that is sales growth annualized and then six percent of that is margin growth so so not only is the revenue increasing but the margin is increasing at the same time that's like a double positive when it all falls down onto the bottom line and your profits growing right but that 29 percent growth most of it is is healthy it's only one percent that's actually due to multiple expansion so again to maybe say that in a simpler way the prices have been going up sharply yes but actually, the multiples haven't been really increasing sharply because the price rise is justified. NVIDIA is the best example out of the MAG-7 of all of this, where their price, they're, I don't know how many hundreds of percent, I, I lose track, how many hundreds of percent the share price has gone up. But the multiple hasn't because the revenue growth is just insane. And so it's justified, right? When you look at the S&P 17, Firstly, they've got less, um, sorry, the S&P 17, the S&P 500. Um, then as a whole, they've got 17% annualized return since 2019. So obviously a lot lower. Not only is it lower, more of that, that, that annualized return is about margin, uh, sorry, is about multiple expansion. So 4% of it is the multiples have gone up and only 13% is actually about revenue growth and margin improvement. So again, it's faster growth, it's healthier growth, and the future just looks more interesting and exciting with AI, and we know they are not shy about reinvesting this cash flow, 60% of it. And so I think when you add all of those up, I'm in Goldman's camp. I'm not in Amundi's. Yeah, and Goldman's summary being that although growth expectations are high, if estimates are realized and valuations remain unchanged, the group are going to outperform. Simples. <laughs> but final point, I do think we need to start, or start, stop just flinging Mag7 about. Mag7, it's, it's a bit like um, the fang. You know, it's the new fang, isn't it? Yeah. So 
I, I do think this year, you, you, it's not the case. In 2023, all seven, all of them smashed it. Share prices went through the roof. I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case. You've already seen Tesla fall off the wagon. Uh, Apple's growth rate, like if you if you look like Nvidia, right? Their expected growth rate is thirty one percent. Apple's is six. So when you delve into the seven, there's a lot of differences. They're obviously very different businesses as well. So you've got to be a bit careful about just bunging them all in one bucket assuming they're the same and that they're going to perform the same. I don't think it's going to be that easy this year like it okay. was last. Question question for you then, although that we're not here to issue investment advice, <laughs> let's say you had a portfolio of all seven. Which one would you classify as the kind of staples or high risk? And how would you categorize the seven? Well, you, I think you've got to say Apple is now, it's just a kind of straight out defensive. It's a, it's a defensive <laughs> stock. It's a cash cow. Growth rates aren't that interesting, um, you know, compared, well, compared to the others, right? Um, there's always questions about innovation. Are these Apple goggles that Tim Cook's spun yeah, out? Where, I mean, where, that, where are your goggles? Have you got them? Well, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Is that going to You've got to do the on? show the goggles on, surely. <laughs> Is that going to catch on? Is it not? Who knows? I've got no idea. But um, <laughs> Apple's the least interesting, but they're such a cash cow. So they're more, more defensive. NVIDIA's, you're like super hyped, super high growth, you know, proper tech growth stock, exactly opposite end of the spectrum. And then I think in the middle, like Microsoft kind of sits in the middle there, I think, where it's got attributes of both. Um, it's defensive, it's a cash cow, and yet it's it's leading on the AI race and so the, the innovation on that side looks exciting um meta i think is kind of again probably in the middle that that dividend play has put it in the middle now now they've just announced a dividend but with them they're still on that moonshot to the metaverse and who knows zuckerberg could be stood here in a decade owning the most valuable company on the planet if that moonshot idea works but equally, you could definitely not. So <laughs> there's a lot of uncertainty, more uncertainty around Meta's sort of growth on that side, I would say. But um, yeah, and then I like Amazon, you know, again, they're very low margin, but, you know, they've got an interesting cloud business, of course. And then obviously they're starting to get a nice little chunky ad revenue thing going so their diversification is increasing um so i think yeah, the r&d i think r&d spend is actually one of the highest is amazon right. yeah yeah when you think about logistics improvements efficiency that sort of stuff and it is hard because they spend so much money on so many things yeah but you know it's really difficult to start to go well you know how many of these bets are going to pay off and how big are they going to be um yeah it gets hard so one there that you mentioned, which I think I'm right in saying has been top of the pile for the last, what, two decades at least. Yeah. Microsoft, I mean, Microsoft. I mean, the safe bet would probably be Microsoft. <laughs> definitely on, on that basis. But to be fair, all of the other six businesses hmm. didn't exist. 25 years ago. But yeah. yeah, 
They've got a track record. Don't bet against them. <laughs> All right. Well, look, what I'll do is I'm going to drop a poll, actually. What sort of time frame? If we get the community to pick, they got to back one horse. What, yeah. what time frame should we say? Should we say, <laughs> what, who's going to act form into maybe the end of quarter one? Do you, are you saying? Okay. Either Well, either Q1, yeah. end of year, or 10 year. Let's have all three. <laughs> Come okay. on. I'll see what I can do then. <laughs> see how you get out at making polls. On, uh... <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, I'll drop that poll. And yeah, drop us what you think. There is no right or wrong answer. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Thanks very much, Piers, and I uh, hope everyone found that useful and insightful. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot.